meditate together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the name of Jesus. Our Savior, our Lord, the Messiah, our Christ. Thank you, Father, that you have given us open eyes this morning to be able to proclaim his name. Not just here in this place, but you have given us freedom to proclaim it among the nations. And I pray, our Father, that we are engaged in that in some way, shape, or form. That's what you've called us to do. And there is power in that name, the name of Jesus. Encourage us today, Lord God. Inspire us by your spirit. May his name be on our lips as we move out of this place and into the world because the world needs Jesus right now, always has. And until he comes again, they always will. Father, focus our attention on this word and do your work in us, we pray. In the precious and the holy name of the one we serve, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. A lighthouse keeper who worked on a rocky stretch of coastline received his new supply of oil once a month to keep that light burning back in the days when... uh, That's how they lit lighthouses. Interesting, this summer, my wife and I have visited a number of lighthouses. It's kind of one of those things, you know, that people do in the state of Maine especially. And uh, we visited some pretty interesting ones. But in this particular story, this lighthouse keeper back in the day um, was given a supply once a month of oil to keep the light burning. Not being far from shore, he had frequent guests that visited with him, And one night, a woman from the village begged some oil to keep her family warm. And so another time, a father asked for some to use in his lamp. Another needed to borrow some oil to lubricate a wheel. And since all these requests seemed very legitimate to the lighthouse keeper, he uh, tried to please everyone, and he granted their requests. Toward the end of the month, he noticed the supply of oil was very, very low. And soon, it was completely non-existent. And the beacon went out. And that night, several ships were wrecked and lives were lost to eternity. When the authorities investigated, the man was very repentant. And to his excuses and pleading, their reply was this. You were given oil for one purpose, to keep that light burning. Now, I tell that story because one of the most difficult areas of ministry in the church is keeping the light of our original mission burning. Most of us can prioritize when faced with right or wrong choices, can't we? The greater challenge, however, is to decide between a variety of very good choices. There's no end to the legitimate requests and needs that must be met within the body of Christ and out in the world around us. And most of them would be classified as good. But what happens at the end of the month when, as in the story, the supply of oil, so to speak, gets low? What happens when all the good requests sap the supply to the point where there is nothing left to meet the primary purpose for which it was originally intended? 
What happens is that the beacon eventually starts to go out and then ships crash and lives are lost and the lighthouse is no longer doing its job. You get the metaphor, don't you? In order to avoid such devastating results, every church, including ours, would do well to periodically ask two important questions of itself. Number one is this, are we still doing what we were initially called to do? And then the second one is, are we doing it effectively? I guess it's always appropriate to take the time to reorient ourselves to what Jesus has called and commissioned us to as his church because we are his body. But because as we saw last time as I began this series that undertaking the ministry of the, of the church means understanding the ministry of Christ. And the place we have decided to begin to acquire this understanding last week is where Jesus began at the announcement of his own public ministry to the world in Luke chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 4 again. We're going to work this text for a few weeks. And um, Jeff read that text this morning, verses 14 through 21. What was Christ's ministry really about? Now, I have mentioned already that there are at least five aspects of Christ's public ministry to the Gentiles in this text that I believe we must not only understand, but intentionally decide to undertake. Last week, we discussed the first, that the power for ministry is the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. Well, let me start in verse 14 here. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. There were two things that directed Christ throughout his ministry and should propel us. And that is that he knew the source of his power, the Holy Spirit, and he knew the significance of his position as the anointed one of God. We must operate with that same understanding. That's what we learned last week. Our ministry needs to be permeated with a powerful presence. Hence, the Spirit of the Lord should be guiding us. The Spirit of the Lord, Jesus says, is upon me. That's what he wrote, he read out of Isaiah. Jesus said he did nothing on his own initiative, we looked at that last week, but relied exclusively on the power of the Spirit for everything. And he has given us that same Spirit to empower us, to guide us, to deliver us from temptation, his presence in our lives gives us power to fulfill the ministry that he's called us to. And the big question at the end of the message last week was, are we operating in that sphere? Because our ministry should be permeated with a powerful presence. It's not being driven by what everybody else is doing around us, especially in this time. But we must be guided and led by the Holy Spirit the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, our ministry should be perceived as a privileged position. That's what Jesus understood. Jesus not only knew the source of his strength, but the significance of his position. He was the Christ, the anointed one. 
The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, we looked at that last week, that we also have been anointed by God by the Holy Spirit when we believed and placed into his body and spiritually empowered for service. In Christ, we have the commission, we have the authority, we have the empowerment, and we have the qualifications to fulfill that mission, according to Matthew 28. Chris, Chris preached on that a few weeks ago. But are we tapping into that? First thing we must understand from Christ's life is that the power for his ministry was the spirit and it is ours as well. It should be the power for ours. Once that's in clear focus, then we move to the second aspect today. That the program for ministry is very specific. Just like the temptations of the devil we found out were very specific in his strategy, the program for Christ's ministry is very specific as well. Look at verses 18 and 19. Jesus read from the book of Isaiah that the Spirit was upon him because he anointed him. Why and how? To preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. There is clear-cut methodology here. Christ was sent by God to preach, proclaim, and to pardon. You can circle it right there. I mean, this is an outline that just jumps off the page. Doesn't take a lot of rocket science to figure out the sermon outline here, does it? Any one of you could have figured that one out. Preach, proclaim, and pardon. Jesus said, he has sent me. It's the Greek word which, with, with which we get our um, English word, apostle. An apostle is one who is sent with an authoritative, as an authoritative representative, as a messenger or an agent of a message. Jesus was sent by the Father into the world with a message to proclaim and a mission to fulfill, and he has sent us into the world with the same specific program. This is all elementary stuff to most church people, right? But we need this reminder. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23 say this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, this is after the resurrection, Jesus came and stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, now watch this, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, watch this now, receive the Spirit. Receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Notice in that text that Jesus, notice the Spirit's power and the specific program that Jesus outlines here. 
What's the program? To preach, to proclaim, and to communicate the pardon from sin that is available for everyone through a personal and living faith in Christ. Amen? Notice the terms in Luke's text. To preach the gospel. To proclaim release to the captives. To set free and to proclaim grace. Literally, it says in verse 19 of Luke 4, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's grace. Not judgment, that's grace. Sometimes we really need to refresh our minds with the basic stuff, don't we? We need to recall the basic original plan and return to that plan where Jesus started with his program. Even when that program doesn't meet with favorable responses, doesn't matter. Jesus didn't say that you would always have a favorable response, did he? But he did say, peace be with you. Why? Because you have the power of the Spirit, you have a significant position, you have a commission from God. And you have the Savior who is with you till the end of the age. That's how you can have peace. And it's not of this world. As one man has said, we don't evangelize because we expect results. We evangelize because we are sent men and women. Period. We leave the results with God. What does that kind of ministry look like? Well, as we unpack this text a little bit, we find that it involves our positive personal participation in the work. To preach here in uh, the Luke 4 passage is the Greek word from which we get our word evangelize. It literally means to address with good tidings, to announce good news. You can look that up. In, in fact, that same word is used in Luke chapter 1, verse 19, when it's speaking, when the angel Gabriel spoke to Zacharias about the good news, okay, that John the Baptist was going to be born. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, Luke uses that same word again. As the angels announced to the shepherds that good news was being proclaimed. I have good news for you. Savior's being born. It's this positive message personally delivered. Let me ask you a question. Is what you and I preach to people good news? Is it good news? Because when you proclaim to people that they can be free from the handcuffs of sin, that they've been imprisoned by for their whole life, that they can have eternal life instead of death, that they can be forgiven for every single sin in their entire life, no matter what that sin is, that, my friends, is good news. It's great news. It's not just good advice. It's good news. When you tell people who are sick and tired that they can have peace of mind and a deep, settled joy in their heart, that is good news. Amen? When you tell people that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, took our punishment for sin, died in our place, was raised from the dead to new life on the third day, and that if we believe in, in him and we embrace him as our Lord and entrust our destiny to, to him, that we are guaranteed life eternal with him in heaven and life of abundance 
spiritually speaking. Here and now, that is good news. My friends, when we beat people up who are far from God with a big book of rules and we tell them that they're not worthy of God's love, not deserving of his attention, or not the object of his compassion, you know what? That's the worst news in the world. They don't want that. Nobody wants to hear that, and I don't blame them. What they want is to be loved. What they need is to be forgiven. What will help them to, is to have their eyes open to the truth. What will free them is to be released from their pain and liberated from their sin, which has already stomped them into the ground. And I can tell you what, right now during COVID-19, all they have to think about is that sin that's stomping them into the ground. And so they're running away from it and indulging in every way possible so that they don't have to think about it. Because what happens when you get alone with yourself? You start thinking about things. People don't want to be alone with themselves because they don't like what's in their head because they don't like what's in their heart. You see, most people who are deeply embedded in sin already know that they're hurting. C.S. Lewis once said that prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. It's the proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous that are in that danger. People who are running from God for the most part know that they're not good enough and instead of reaching out compassionately and lifting them to a place in which they will listen to what we have to say, we tend to grind them down just a little bit further, a little bit deeper in order to ensure that no one will think that we're going soft on sin. Well, we're not going soft on sin. Jesus never went soft on sin, but he was full of grace and truth, wasn't he? He had a way of telling the truth, but offering grace which lured, not lured, but invited and drew people out of their sin. Somehow, wrote one author, we have created a community of respectability in the church. The down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome. How did Jesus, the only per perfect person in history, manage to attract the notoriously imperfect you ever try to figure that one out? And what keeps us from following in his footsteps? What in the world has happened to the church? What has happened to Christians? Why is it that sinners don't like being around us? Oh, for crying out loud, why is it that church people don't like being around us? You may be quick to say that it's because they don't like being faced with the truth of Jesus Christ. And in some cases, you might be right, that may be true. But the fact remains that the gospel accounts say that the non-religious, the social outcasts, were drawn to Jesus, who is the embodiment of the truth. 
The only people that didn't like being around him were the ones that thought that they were righteous. We need to be reminded that it wasn't primarily the tax gatherers and the prostitutes who clamored for Christ to be crucified, was it? Was it? We don't read that. It was those who thought they had a corner on the truth and righteousness. It was religious people that clamored for his crucifixion. They were the ones that offended Jesus, that were offended by Jesus. I'm sorry. Those were, who were estranged from the religious and moral observance were intrigued by Jesus. They were attracted to Jesus. It's evident throughout the Gospels when you read them. And it is often still true today. In his book, Prodigal God, Tim Keller, former pastor of Redeemer Church in Manhattan, draws our attention to the fact that in every case where Jesus meets a religious person and a sexual outcast, as in Luke 7, for example, or a religious person and a racial outcast, as in John chapter 3 and 4, or a religious person and a political outcast, as in Luke 19, the outcast is the one who connects with Jesus and the elder brother type does not. Jesus says to the respectable religious leaders, quote, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will enter the kingdom before you will, unquote. That's Matthew chapter 21, verse 31. That's exactly what's happening here in Luke 4. Jesus says, I'm going to, you know, the message was given to the Gentiles and they responded to it. You people, you don't respond to it. That's why they wanted to kill him in Luke 4. Jesus' teaching consistently, says Tim Keller, attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted are not attracted to contemporary churches, even our most avant-garde ones, he says. We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people, the licentious and the liberated or the broken and marginal, actually avoid church. That can only mean one thing, he says, if the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. Those are heavy words. Then he concludes with this. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we'd like to think. Referring to the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Oh, that's cause for meditation. Cause for self-evaluation. It's cause for conviction. Philip Yancey wrote, Jesus was the friend of sinners. They liked being around him and longed for his company. Meanwhile, legalists found him shocking, even revolting. What was Jesus' secret that we have lost? The author says. Well, I think the secret was that along with the fact that he preached good news to people was that he was good news to people. That's super critical for all of us to understand, you know. Because here's the thing. You and I cannot effectively bring good news to people's ears without being good news to people's eyes. 
Let me say that again. You and I cannot effectively bring good news to people's ears without being good news to people's eyes. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7 says this, how beautiful, mark that, how beautiful, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. It's the same thing here is what Jesus is talking about. Are you and I good news to anybody? I think Jesus had what one author refers to as a yes face. I think Jesus had a yes face. There are yes faces and there are no faces. You know that? You know what I'm talking about? And we've all interacted with both of those, don't we? Haven't we? You know, I'm doing it right now. I'm looking out here because every time I stand in this place and I look out into your eyes, you know what I see? I see yes faces and I see no faces. And right now you're all putting on your yes face. (laughs) And I, in turn, do the same thing. You know, some of you have yes faces and some of you have no faces. Guess which ones I'm drawn to when I'm preaching? The yes faces. I can only hope that mine isn't relegated to the no category. Which kind of face is good news to you? A yes or a no face? Which one are you drawn to? Which one are you? During his days as president, Thomas Jefferson and a group of companions were traveling across the country on horseback. And they came to a river which, they had le- which had overflown its banks because of a recent downpour and the swollen river had washed the bridge away. And every rider was forced to ford the river on horseback, fighting for his life against the rapids and the currents. Now, the very real possibility of death threatened every rider, which caused a traveler who was not part of the group to step aside and watch as they crossed. Now, after several had plunged in and made it to the other side, the stranger asked President Jefferson if he would ferry him across the river. The president agreed without hesitation. The man climbed on, and shortly thereafter, the two of them made it safely to the other side. And as the stranger slid off the back of the saddle onto dry ground, one of the group asked him, point blank, tell me, why did you select a president to ask this favor of, of all people. The man was shocked, admitting he had no idea that it was the president who had helped him. All I know, he said, is that on some of your faces was written the answer no, and on some of them was the answer yes. His was a yes face. Now, I'm utterly convinced that Jesus had a yes demeanor. And in that same author's words, he said, he revolutionized the entire direction of religion because he announced yes while all his professional peers were frowning no. Jesus said, yes, come to me. They all said, no, you're not welcome here. You got to get your life right first before you come into this temple. 
Jesus' life shows us that our ministry, if it's going to be like his, must involve our positive personal participation, being good news to people. But also it involves our intentional public proclamation. Here's the truth of the matter. You gotta tell it. You gotta tell the message. You can't just be the message, you gotta tell it too. The ministry that Jesus sent us out to accomplish, the ministry that he announced was his, was he was anointed to perform, if you read it, was three quarters proclamation. Look at it in Luke chapter four. That means that at, the, at work, at the gym, in the supermarket, in the doctor's office, in the shop, wherever and whenever there's an opportunity, you know what? We speak good news. We don't just act out the good news, but we also speak the good news. It's not enough to be good news. You've got to give the good news. Notice the terms here. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus could have just gone through his life, healed people, get on the cross, died, rose from the dead three days later, but he didn't do that, did he? At the beginning of his ministry, the Bible says that Jesus went out and proclaimed and preached the word, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, Paul uses this verse as support for the necessity of a clear proclamation of the gospel message in Romans chapter 10 and verses 14 and 15 and verse 17. Here it is. How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Consequently, and this is Paul's way of saying, here's the bottom line, folks. Faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word. What do we preach? Well, the gospel of Christ crucified. We preach release from the bondage of sin, light to those who are in the dark, and grace to those who are oppressed. We don't preach a denomination. We preach deliverance. We don't preach a small group. We preach a big God we, who became small like one of us, who humbled himself as one who serves, even to the point of death on a cross. We don't preach our favorite pastor. We preach a risen Savior. Amen? We preach Jesus Christ, Lord of all, author and giver of salvation. That's what we preach. That's what Paul says that we preach in Romans chapter 10. Very familiar verses, beginning in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are proclaiming and preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen? For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, 
whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And then in verse 13, we read these words. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. Some people will respond. Others won't. Some will outrightly reject it. Had that happen a lot of times. It happened to Jesus as well. But that response should never deter us from proclaiming that good news. Why? Because the gospel is good news, whether people think it is or not. And that's what we've been commissioned to do. And especially for those who don't believe it, it's good news. You just got to keep on giving it to them. Listen, if the gospel isn't good news for everybody, then it isn't good news for anybody. How did Jesus handle people's negative responses to him? Well, Oswald Chambers wrote this. He says, our Lord was never impatient. He simply planted seed thoughts. We get impatient and take men by the scruff of the neck and we say, you must believe this and you must believe that. Listen, you cannot make anyone see moral truth by persuading his intellect. When he, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit has come, he shall guide you into all the truth. It's the Spirit's work. And friends, it is the truth that makes people free. Amen? We just need to sow the seed. And setting people free is part of the specific program that Jesus modeled. Look at verse 18 of chapter 4 of Luke again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free, set free those who are oppressed. So it involves a powerful spiritual emancipation. The gospel is an emancipation proclamation. It literally is. When downtrodden people respond in faith to the good news of Christ, you know what happens to them? They are set free, completely free. The term Jesus used at the end of Luke 4, 18, literally means to send away or dismiss. An essential part of the ministry of Christ was to set people free from the prison of their sin. He says, you're free. Be gone out of that prison. Now, while only Christ can forgive sin, the scripture plainly records that before he ascended into heaven, he conferred upon his disciples the authority to proclaim in no uncertain terms that when a person admits their sin, repents of it, and places their faith in Jesus Christ that his or her sins indeed are forgiven by the Father. Is that right? In John chapter 20, in verse 23, again, we've read it earlier in this, in this message. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. It's a bold move, mind you, but we can rightly say you're free. Jesus Christ has forgiven you. To every single person who admits their sin and repents of it, 
And to those who place their faith in response to Jesus Christ, we can confidently say, you're free, your sins are forgiven. It's not that we forgive those sins. We just know the truth, that they've already been forgiven. That's what people really need to hear. Because it is good news. It's the best news. The other day in my morning meditation, the Lord brought these words of Charles Spurgeon to my attention. Let me read them to you. I want to uh, share them with you. Quote, Since thou art forgiven freely for Christ's sake, go and tell to others the joyful news of pardoning mercy. Be not contented with this unspeakable blessing for thyself alone but publish abroad the story of the cross. Holy gladness and holy boldness will make you a good preacher and all the world will be a pulpit for you to preach in, unquote. Those are great words. It's a great encouragement. I think they line up perfectly with what we've been sent to do, commissioned by Jesus. But often, we don't take the opportunity. The other day, a friend and I went through a drive-thru to get iced coffee. And after receiving the order, I pulled away and my friend made a reference to the message that was written across the front of that worker's cap. I didn't even see it. But forgive my language, but on the, on the cap, it said, 2020 sucks. Now, he's not the only one that feels that way, is he? Not right now. He's a young man, probably missed his graduation. Probably all kinds of things are going on. Has no hope for the future. 2020, indeed, is a crappy year for him. I said to my friend, that's a conversation starter because he brought it to my attention. I didn't see that message. I said, that's a conversation starter. I wish I had seen it. I said, because I was in just the right kind of mood to say to that young man, you know what? I could see how you might feel that way, but what would you say if I told you right now that 2020 could be the best year of your entire life? I can guarantee you that if you gave it over to Jesus Christ, it would be. And I can tell you that from personal experience. You see, we miss these opportunities all the time. You see, it's only by grace through faith in Jesus that people can obtain true freedom. Freedom from the fear of death. Freedom from compulsive obsessions. Freedom from legalism, freedom from guilt, freedom from, from controlling and depressing power of sins. That is the ministry that Christ was involved in, that he announced here in Luke 4. It's the ministry that he left to us to bring to others, which will indeed set them free, that he commissioned us to in John 20 and 23. It's what you and I must be about the reason he left us on this earth. It really doesn't require a lot of complexity, does it? Just a little simple obedience. In the movie, The Shawshank Redemption is about a prisoner convicted of a murder that he did not commit. 
And that prisoner escapes by crawling through a sewer line until he is outside the prison's walls. And the narrator describes the transaction this way. Here's the quote from the movie. He crawled through a river of dung and came out clean on the other side, unquote. You know what, folks? God did that. God the Son did that, and he did it for the likes of me and for the likes of you and many more like us. He crawled through a river of dung, death, so that we might come out the other side clean. And that truth doesn't just change life for us after we die, it changes life for us now. The 17th century Christian mystic, Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection, and I'll leave you with this, wrote these words. He said, I regard myself as the most wretched of all men, stinking and covered with sores, and as one who has committed all sorts of crimes against his king. Overcome by remorse, I confess all my wickedness to him, ask his pardon, and abandon myself entirely to him to do with as he wills. But this king filled with goodness and mercy, far from chastising me, lovingly embraces me, makes me to eat at his table, serves me with his own hands, gives me the keys of his treasures and treats me as his favorite. He talks with me and is delighted with me in a thousand and one ways. He forgives me and relieves me of my principal bad habits without talking about them. I beg him to make me according to his heart and always the more weak and despicable I see myself to be, the more beloved I am of God. That's what Jesus has done. Isn't that good news? And if it's good news to us, think of what it is to people who are far from God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for saving us. Thank you for giving your life for us, a Savior of whom which we are unworthy to call our Lord. But we bow before you in our hearts today in all humility, recognizing the pardon that we've received and how much you have set us free. Help us, Lord God, to go forth from this place and not just to be both the good news and to proclaim the good news. Whatever fears or reticence that we have, I pray that you would overcome that with the power of your spirit, that we might just blurt out from our lips that people can be free and forgiven in Christ. Help us to do that, even as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name I pray.